Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone, welcome to Battle Walks. I hope you're enjoying strolling with us across the battlefields of Europe. We've done a lot in France and Belgium recently and that's really where Pete's and my heart lies on the battlefields of the Western Front from the First World War and we've got another really exciting one today. So before we kick it off, I'm going to introduce my co-host, Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. How's things in France? Hi Matt. Uh, cold. The temperature's dropped again. We thought that spring had sprung, but we seem to be back in deepest, darkest winter at the moment. So a little bit of snow today, unusually. I always love it, mate. Every time I talk to you, I, I, I do hark back to the troops who served in exactly that area during the First World War, who went through exactly the same thing. We spoke a few weeks ago about Bullecourt with fresh snow falling on the 11th of April. Um, we're actually not too far from that time now that we're recording this. So uh, I always uh, I always align your experiences with what, with what those troops went through a century ago. Yeah, it, and the, the weather is so changeable. I suspect that the weather patterns uh, at that period during the Great War were, were a little bit more stable. But nowadays, uh, last year, this was very warm. We were already into the edge of summer uh, last year at this point. Uh, this year, it's still the edge of winter. So we never quite know what's around the corner at the moment. Well, speaking of those troops and speaking of the weather and the conditions they had to endure, we're going to do a walk today, which I think is going to be pretty exciting we're going to focus on the battlefield of Pozieres, which we've mentioned three or four times in podcasts. It's just such an essential Australian site. This is one of the key battlefields, if not the most important battlefield in France for the Australian troops. The fighting here in 1916 was, well, the most costly Australia has ever been involved in, 23,000 casualties in six weeks. But we're not going to talk about the battle today. We're going to talk about the approach march that the soldiers took to that battlefield because in Charles Bean's official history... On page 472 of volume 3, if you want to read along with us, he describes in intricate detail the approach march to the front lines at Pozieres. And it's a fascinating thing. It's one of the few places that he does it in the official history. 
in such detail. And it's because he knew the battlefield of Pozier so well. He said that only Pozier uh, and also the battlefield at Krithia in Gallipoli were the, the two battlefields that he crossed the most during the actual fighting. So because of that, he had a, an incredible knowledge of what it was like to get up to the front line of Pozier. So when he wrote the official history, in amazing detail, he wrote what the experiences, what the experience was like for the soldiers as they went up to the front line. So that's what we're going to do today. A little bit different. We're going to read from the official history, and then we're going to talk about what you can see on the ground and relate it to the the, the words on those pages. So it's it's going to be a good one, isn't it, Pete? It is indeed, and uh, I quite like this idea of uh, of actually reading from the official history and then adding just adding to it by explaining what we can see today if we're walking in the same route. I mean, sometimes we can't quite walk in exactly the same route, but we'll do our best. Uh, and describing what's around us and what there is to see that it, that is relevant and was mentioned in the, the war diary. So there's really three parts to it. We're going to talk about what the troops saw at the time as we get it from the official history. Then we're going to talk about those sites today, what's still there and what's changed. And I should say a lot of this hasn't changed. It's remarkably similar to what the troops saw, minus the destruction and trenches, of course. And and then we're also going to talk about what we see as we walk and what we've done from our experience. So it's going to be really great. I've done this walk several times. It's fascinating. I've done it with the official history in hand, even though it's a big old bulky book. And it's uh, it's just absolutely brilliant. So we're not going to go into too much detail about the Battle of Pozier at this stage. We'll do that on a later podcast. But the quick summation is it was the first Australian action of the Battle of the Somme. It started in on the 23rd of July, 1916, and it went until the early days of August. And as I said, 23,000 casualties in six weeks. So we should also add that by this stage, there wasn't much to be seen of the village of Pozier. It had been fairly fairly well destroyed by shell fire. So when the when the town of Pozier is mentioned, it's really only some some shattered foundations and 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 red red brick dust was the way that the troops could tell that they were anywhere near the village. So it's it's a really fascinating walk. Pete, do, do you want to kick off with the first the first passage describing the march leaving the town of Albert? Okay, so I'm just going to describe um, uh, where we are. So we're just uh, going to be talking about Albert, the approaches to the, the front line. Remembering that the Battle of the Somme started on the 1st of July, we're now at the 23rd of July, so there's already been an awful lot of action taking place in this area and an awful lot of men moving to and froing. So this is what Charles Bean uh, had to say. Such were the brigades which passed through the villages crowded with British troops fresh from the battle, dipped down to the red-roofed city of Albert, low in the valley of the Onc, where directed by traffic controlmen through its congested and, and battered but not yet ruined streets, over the narrow brick bridge little more than a culvert, wound to the right beneath the shadow of the great red brick church of Notre Dame de Berberis, from the broken tower of which the gilded statue of the Virgin and Child hung at right angles as if diving into the street far below and presently rested for their tea beside the Bapome Road at the foot of a long, bare, grassy slope, Tara Hill, the last green country intervening between them and the battlefield. So, Pete, I mean, a few things to talk about there, most notably the town of Albert, which is still the centre of this region of the battlefields in the Somme. It was a vitally important reserve area for the Allied troops and and still is a, a vital support hub for the town. I mean, you, you live not far from there. Tell us a little bit about Albert. 
Uh, well, Albert was, was flattened. By the end of the war, it was flattened because, of course, the fighting will return in 1918 and the Germans will eventually take Albert. So it, would, it was uh, basically needed to be completely rebuilt. There is, I don't think there's anything, actually, that we can say for certain that building is a, a remnant. It's very difficult to tell some of them uh, being refronted, but the majority were totally destroyed. At this period, it's not totally flattened. It's very badly damaged. As we can tell, the Madonna and Child, this very famous uh, gilded Virgin Mary dangling over the town, um, it, it took on almost a, a life of its own in the fact that a myth grew around it. All the soldiers saw it. My grandfather sent postcards home of it. Um, Australian soldiers knew it well, would have bought postcards. And like a lot of people, they made a nickname for it. Um, and... Um, Matt, can you remember what that nickname is? Yeah, they say that it was always called... So this is a statue of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus and it was leaning at a precarious angle over the square, as Pete said. And and uh, so the, it was invariably called the Leaning Virgin or the, the Crooked Virgin, but the Australians called it Fanny Durack after the, the famous Australian swimmer of the time because the uh, statue looked like she was about to dive into a pool. And so they called her Fanny Durack. Uh, which uh, I love the Australians always giving their flavour to everything that went on. And interestingly as well, the town itself, Albert, a French name, but we get a little bit of an insight into how the soldiers pronounce the names. And obviously they weren't too concerned with the French pronunciation because, you know, famously the town of Ypres up in Belgium, they called Wipers. Um, but this one, I've seen several references to the town and the Australians just abbreviate it and they just called it Bert. So that suggests <laughs> to me that they were calling it Albert, not Albert. So uh, I love the Australian flavour that comes through all these places. I think my grandfather would have known this as Albert as well. It would have definitely yes. been Albert. So Bert for yeah. short. I'll, I'll see you, mate, in a couple of weeks. We'll be back in Bert. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. a fascinating place. The, the And the church is still there, Pete, which is great, with a, a completely reconstructed virgin and child on, on top of the tower. Yeah, there was even some debate when they were rebuilding it whether it should have the Madonna and child still dangling over the town, whether that would be a memorial in its own right. And I think quite rightly the townspeople said, no way, we want it rebuilt as it was. And it was a very French attitude, this attitude of we want our country, which has been destroyed, put back exactly as it was. It will be as if it was never destroyed. It will be as if they never came, as if the Germans never came here and did all of this damage. So there was a real drive to try and get as much as possible back as as to how it had been before the war. I've always thought it's interesting, the reconstruction of the French villages and the Belgian villages, in many ways to me reflects really what the soldiers were going through as well when these towns rebuilt themselves. They said, we want to remember, we never want to forget, this was a vital part of our history, what we went through, but we don't want it to, to define us. And I, I think that was really the same struggle the soldiers were going through, that they wanted to remember their war service and what they'd done, what they'd contributed. But they didn't want it to be the feature that defined them for the rest of their life. So I always, I always think that there's a there's a neat little link between the experience of the soldiers and the uh, the experience of the, the the villagers who came back to their shattered towns. I'm just going to go off on one of my little tangents here. Uh, many years ago, I took a gentleman on tour who had something in his wallet he wanted to show me, um, wrapped up in a, a piece of what was obviously First World War hanky, a green service hanky. And he said, Pete, have a look at this. We're in a bar. And he un unwrapped it. And he said, as he's unwrapping it, he said, uh, I've got a, uh, a toe in here. And I thought, oh, my Lord, what on earth has he got somebody's toe in here? Anyway, he opened it up. And he did have a toe, but it wasn't a toe from a person. It was a toe from a statue. And he said, could we pop into the Basilica uh, in Albert? He said, because my grandfather actually picked this up from uh, the Basilica. It had been blown off one of the statues and he carried it for the whole of the war as a, a good look 
symbol in his wallet, and I just want to see if there's a statue in there with with no toe. And now, sadly, there wasn't, <laughs> because it was so badly destroyed later on in the war. I think everything went in the end, and so there was nothing there. So we wandered about with this toe, looking at all the statuary in there, <laughs> seeing it, seeing if it would if it would fit, but it didn't, sadly. But a great story, and uh, I said to him, "What a fantastic little souvenir." You were going to talk about um, uh, someone who was in Albert at the time of the war as well. You've got a quote for us about uh, what it was like to be in the town of Albert. Yeah, I have. Um, one of my favourite books, uh, a gentleman called uh, Ernest Shepherd. He was a sergeant major in the Dorset Regiment. And just before the Battle of the Somme uh, in the uh, March of 1916, he'd been billeted in the town, which I found fascinating in its own right. I thought the town would be too heavily shelled at uh, that period uh, for soldiers to be billeted there, but he wasn't. Uh, he was billeted there. So I'm just going to read a little little uh, excerpt from his, uh, his, his diary, which was turned into a book. Our artillery shelled Poisier this afternoon. The enemy retaliated by shelling Albert at 10pm. They are shelling as I write, and unpleasantly close to my billet. We are too near the church to be healthy. I found out today that this billet has had three shells in the back rooms. Uh, they're blown away, and I'm not surprised as the house is on the crossroads. And the enemy can register their guns very easily on the crossroads, as they are always shown on maps and always fired on in the hope of catching transport, etc. Also, we are close to the station. So a little later, just a paragraph later, we returned and got back to the billets at 1pm. In the afternoon, I had a good walk around the town, over to the church, a terrible wreck, to the square on Perron Road, and through numerous roads back. I was surprised to see how much of the town had been shelled all around. My impression before on passing through was that only the areas around the church and the railway station had caught it all, but the houses, etc., uh, are low to the ground. I saw the enemy have shelled every street practically through, uh, throughout. The houses are mostly standing. Round the church and station is a good imitation of Ypres. He'd served in Ypres, so he knew what total destruction looks like. The features of the Madonna and Child on the church are gradually dropping lower by inches. The French say when it falls, the war will end. So he, he, he's, uh, he's giving us a, a good idea of, of what it was like. What he also points out, I won't read any more, but what he also points out is that there are still civilians in the town, which, I, again, I was very surprised about. And he said they're really there to make money. They're selling newspapers and souvenirs and selling them to the soldiers. Of course, they're passing through on the way to the front. Uh, so so still a few civilians in the town, not many, I would suspect. It was a fascinating time in that era before the uh, the, the Battle of the Somme really kicked off on the 1st of July. And um, obviously, once that occurred, the, the place was changed forever. We should Something else we should mention from Charles Bean's quote now... The interesting thing about these quotes is you may struggle in this audio format to keep up with exactly what he's saying because incredible long run on sentences, Pete. That entire paragraph is one sentence. And I think it just reflects Bean's just connection with the place and his desire to get across the feeling of what it was like. That He just talks about here's what the soldiers were going through in, in very long sentences. So bear with us with that. But one thing he mentions very late is uh, the, the foot of a long, bare, grassy slope, which he called Tara Hill, the last green country intervening between them and the battlefield. And Tara Hill is, of course, still there. And I must say, Pete, when I've done this walk before, I have not started in the town of Albert like the soldiers did because it's you know it's busy today and it's a little bit difficult. Normally what I do is drive out and park. There's a little cemetery at the foot of Tara Hill and normally I park my car there and begin this walk actually out in the fields. Have you ever done this walk, Pete, from the town itself? 
I haven't. I haven't actually been over Tara Hill. Um, I go a different route, and I was going to mention it. It's another route that the soldiers use, and it takes us straight into to Bicol, which we're going to talk about. And it, it's an optional route, and the soldiers definitely use it. The transport went that way quite often. So I often wonder, as we kind of walk up the road, up the saddle with uh, Tara on the light, right and Usna on the left, it's uh, uh, just a saddle, so the road runs in this in this low bit between two high pieces, pieces on the hill. And I've often wondered why they went that way, because there are options, and it takes them become they become very visible to the enemy, to the Germans, as they crest the top. So I think it was only really used in the dark. I can't imagine anybody going over the top of this of this ridge in the daytime. Um, Bean is going to describe uh, going o- over it, but I, when I walk, I prefer to use a different route uh, to the right, which takes you directly into Bicor. Uh, but bo- both are good, but walking on the side of the main road, as you will have experienced, Matt, is... It's not brilliant. It's a fairly busy road. It's a Roman road. It's straight as a die. And a lot of lorries use it as a shortcut rather than go on the motorways because you have to pay tolls on the motorways. Well, I, when I've done this walk a couple of times, I've parked uh, next to the little cemetery, had a look at the cemetery, then ducked around behind uh, Tara Hill. You're right what you say about the troops being exposed. And Bean also mentions at another part that um, in his book about newly arrived troops who came to Albert would actually creep out of the town and they'd scramble up on their bellies onto the top of Tara and Usna Hills and look out and see the flashes and the flares and the flash of artillery in the distance and the cacophony of battle, knowing that they very soon, within a day or two, would be in the heart of that. And imagine what that must have been for troops. Even the experienced troops who came from Gallipoli would never have seen anything like what they were seeing on the Western Front. So I always think about that when, I, uh, when I'm in this area. But um, yeah, so uh, the ducking around the back of Tara Hill, this is not a particularly interesting part of the walk but uh, it's it's what gets you started and leaves your car in a good spot that you can find it when you get back but as you say that walk back along the main road is not is not particularly great either uh, but this is what we've got to do today to walk in the footsteps of the troops so why don't i describe now the next section of the uh, of this passage and uh, talking about what the troops experienced as they as they went around tara hill so he's talking specifically here about the uh, the first division coming into the battlefield into the line just before the australians attacked on the 23rd of July, so there's a lot of references when he talks about the battle or previous fighting. He's talking about the the early fighting on the Somme from the first of July onwards. So there's been three weeks of heavy fighting. So he's talking about the Australian troops first coming into the line just before. I think it was at the 19th of July that, uh, that this was written. At six o'clock, the Ninth Battalion from Queensland led off around the slope of Tara Hill, down into Avoca Valley, uh, a lower bend of Mash Valley, over the next hill, on the lower end of which lay the dense green cluster of Beecor Wood and down again into the long, shallow dip of Sausage Valley, invariably known to the Australians as Sausage Gully, which for the next six weeks was to be the main avenue of approach to the Australian fighting area, its constant traffic and busy life recalling to some of the troops their memories of the beach at Anzac. The route here used by transport was not a regular road, but a bare track worn by thousands of wheels passing around the edge of Beecor Wood and then skirting the western side of Sausage Gully not far from the Great Chalk Mine Crater south of La Boiselle. Thence for a mile along the bottom of the valley, winding between a sea of old shell holes, past line after line of old German trenches, the scene of famous but entirely forgotten fighting of a fortnight before. Troops passing through this area by day were immediately struck by the fact that it was flayed of most of its former covering of grass, the white chalk earth or red-brown soil showing bare and crossed in every direction by hundreds of dust tracks. The outlines of the trenches and the old shell holes were worn down by recent bombardments and by the feet of thousands of men. In wet weather, every track and shell hole grew slimy with white or red mud. So, Pete, what an evocative description of, of this really important feature that we know as Sausage Valley or Sausage Gully to the Australians. 
Again, a few things to unpack here in one very long sentence. So the Australians are walking through Beecore Wood. They're heading down into Sausage Gully, which reminded a lot of them of the beach at Anzac, as he said. So they're named for Gallipoli. So it reminded them of being back on the beach at Gallipoli at Anzac Cove. And then, interestingly, past the great mine crater south of La Boiselle, which is today known as Lochnagar Crater, and is, of course, still there. And before we talk about that, I want to add a little footnote that Bean actually adds a footnote, which is, again, paints another picture. He says, this crater is further south of the one that visitors to the Somme may have seen right beside the main road. So isn't it interesting that Bean, writing this several years after the war, he's writing in the early 20s, actually probably by the mid-20s the mid by this stage, is um, referring to the fact that visitors going to the Somme see a big mine crater on the side of the road, but that, but that's not the one that uh, he's referring to. Interestingly, that mine crater on the side of the road is no longer there, and the big one he refers to still is. So, wow, a lot to go through. Where are we going to begin, Pete, with all this? Well, I'm just going to start off by talking about the, the actual road that he's uh, describing here. Because one of the sadder aspects of this is normally when we're talking about roads, we can actually follow that road. But these are not roads. There were, there were no roads here. These were tracks made by the military. Um, that caved up Sausage Valley and uh, and around uh, the edge of the wood at Beecor. So there's nothing there. We cannot follow them exactly because there are no roads. Well, you can, but you have to hope that the farmer has got no crops in. Then they're quite happy there is a right to roam in France, so we can, we can follow the routes. Um, so very often you can follow the route exactly, but you're not following any kind of trackway or road. There's nothing there whatsoever. Um... I think uh, one of the things that uh, we need to uh, to really to to get into our head that dis- that description of it looking like Anzac Cove when you think, well, hang on a minute, that's got the sea behind us, and so it's very different. What they're actually talking about is the amount of uh, of everything that we have here of supplies, of transport, of people, of wounded coming and going. It's it's just a very very unbelievably busy thoroughfare. It is the, the one of the uh, of four, I suppose, four main routes onto the Somme battlefield. And for Australia, it is the only route onto their battlefield for the, for the fighting at Poissier. So that's the first thing to kind of in, envisage what it was like. Just just crowded with people moving backwards and forwards. And so was an ideal target for German guns. And that, they're always trying to find it. They're always trying to get their uh, their shells onto this uh, this roadway. We should mention as well the name Sausage Gully. Uh, that was it was so named because early in the fighting in the Somme, the Germans had some observation balloons at the head of the gully, and so did the British troops. They look like sausages, so they called it Sausage Valley. And then, but of course, there's another valley just across the road. So if you've got one on this side of the road called Sausage, what are you going to call the one across the road? They called it Mash. So the two valleys were Sausage and Mash. And then the Australians, as always, putting their spin on it, referred to it almost universally as Bean says as Sausage Gully, like they did everywhere they went. They they rarely use the name Valley. You know, when you go to to Gallipoli. Um, even though the cemetery, the main cemetery there is now called Shrapnel Valley Cemetery. Don't don't think for a minute that the Australians referred to it as Shrapnel Valley. To them, it was always Shrapnel Gully. And uh, it's it's just a bit of a standard uh, uh, nomenclature thing of the Australians uh, during the First World War. Really quite fascinating. But, um, gee, where, what else are we going to talk to about here, Pete? So many amazing things. So well, let's start with Beecore. Let's start with, the, you mentioned the, 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 the walking around Beecore Wood and the town of Beecore. Tell us about that. Well, Beecor Town, there isn't one really. It's just a chateau. There was a chateau there. The town's a little bit further back. Um, the chateau was uh, still standing. Uh, and in fact, there's an, the nature of this landscape just here, there's a dip in the land and it's just hidden behind a little bit of a ridge. 
So Beecor Wood and Beecor Chateau were in fairly good nick. So the wood, normally when we're talking about trees, especially uh, during the Battle of the Somme, and we talk about a, a wood and we talk about the trees in the wood, I always make the comment there's no trees there, the trees are, are completely gone. In this case, the trees had not gone. This still had an element of uh, of a leafy glade aspect, um, and it will lead you into Sausage Valley. Uh, the sh- the chateau, uh, uh, which has been rebuilt, and that's another interesting aspect because most of the chateaus in this area were not rebuilt at the end of the First World War. They were already on their last legs, uh, and I think effectively the landowners took the money and ran and and didn't re- rebuild. This chateau has been rebuilt. It's now a sports centre and it's used. It's a civic a civic uh, building, but it's been rebuilt. Uh, very similar to uh, to as it as it had been. Perhaps not quite as big as it had, it had been. During the fighting, it, uh, the cellars and the buildings were used as an aid post, and there was the Australian 2nd Divisional Field Ambulance was actually based in the cellars there. Uh, the, uh, there are some absolutely superb photographs uh, of, of the men actually uh, working in the cellars uh, held by the Australian War Memorial, so that's uh, well worth uh, trying to dig those out and have a, have a look at those. Um, in fact, I've, I've got a copy. We'll add that to the Facebook page that we have uh, for the, the podcast. So the, the chateau is still there. You can go and have a look at the chateau. The wood is still there. So you actually do get a little bit of a, of a feel of what it was like. But what we can't do after that is head up on the uh, on the road because there, there isn't one. What I remember about the first time I did this walk, which must have been about maybe 2003, something like that. I was living in London at the time and it was winter and I grabbed a sturdy pair of gumboots and headed across and just spent a weekend walking the battlefields. And that was the first time I did this walk. And I remember coming into Beecor Wood, not really knowing where I was, but assuming it was Beecor Wood because it's described in Bean's book. And I remember as I walked through the wood, just had a little bit of a stroll. It's never a great idea to go into French woods without permission, but I did on this occasion. And as I came strolling through the wood, I came out the other side and up to my left, I just saw this huge sloping hill just heading up to the left. I thought, that's really odd. I wonder what exactly that is. And as I walked a little bit further, of course, it struck me what I was looking at. I was looking at the lip of the famous Loch Nagar mine crater. But because I was down in a little bit of a valley and looking up at it from a perspective that most people didn't see, it was very difficult to recognize it as, a, as anything other than a, a big pile of earth. And then I realized that I was looking at the lip of the mine crater as, as I walked out. So La Boiselle, the famous huge mine crater on the Somme, Pete. Yeah, it's interesting because it's 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 very visual because in a landscape that's intensively farmed, it's an area where you can see scrub and trees and kind of weeds and stuff. In you know, even if you can't see the crater itself, you can see that there's a little bit of landscape there that's 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 not. It's natural. It's not farmed like the rest of the landscape all around us. So it, it does stand stand out considerably. I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because I think it's always worthwhile talking about it because the French had fought here in 1914 at the Chateau and it is a very successful defence of the Chateau um, on the 7th and 8th of October in 1914. And again, we very often forget about the French uh, fighting here in 1914, slowing the Germans down and in fact stopping them here. This is where the Germans were held by, uh, by the French for a, a period of time. Um, so Biko uh, Chateau, very, very w- well remembered, um, and the French here, the uh, 26th and 160th uh, Infantry took seven officers and 400 prisoners um, as they, the Germans were trying to uh, assault this chateau. So it's just interesting to comment upon the fighting in 1914 here before we move off and carry on and talk a little bit more about the Loch Nagar crater, because that great crater on our left is 
perhaps one of the most visited sites on the Western Front. It's very popular for school children and adults who know very little about the battlefield because it's well signposted from the main road, this road that runs from the motorway effectively to Albert uh, via um, uh, Bapome. And uh, almost everybody comes to have a look at the Loch Nagar crater. Um, 60,000 pounds of aminol were used in the detonation and it's created a crater that's 30 metres deep and 100 metres wide and it's got a walkway all the way around it. Now, a lot of people, Matt and I very often talk about this, about how the battlefield has changed and do we like what has happened and I have to say, Loch Nagar, very famous. I wish it had just been left as it was. Uh, but it's been, because so many people visit it, it's now got a duckboard uh, walkway right the way around it. And it's got explanatory panels all the way around it. And, and it's I think it's been overdone. There are too many things there where it really just needs to be a place where you go and stand and and remember. Um, but everybody has their own idea of how the battle be, battlefield should be preserved. And we have to be thankful that it's still there because there's a chap who owns it, it was called Richard Dunning, he bought it in the 60s when it was going to be filled in and Matt mentioned that there was another crater near the road uh, called Y Ravine and that uh, crater was was filled in uh, about at the same time. They were both going to be filled in. It's now built upon, actually, oddly, that crater. It's got a house on top of it. But this one has been preserved. And I think just, just let's be thankful that it's there, I suppose. It's amazing how much things have changed in a short period of time, Pete. My first trip to the battlefields was in 2002, which is relatively late, considering that you know people like yourself and you listen to Paul Reed's wonderful podcast, The Old Front Line. He talks about being there in the 80s when he first was coming over. So 2002 was actually relatively late in the whole scheme of things. But even then, if you went out to Loch Nagar, there weren't many people there and you could scramble down to the bottom and I got my photo taken in the bottom of the crater and there was nothing there. There was no signpost. There was nothing. There was just It was just this incredible crater. And it really does... I don't actually think it needs much more. It it speaks of the horrendous violence that created it. The the thought that this mine was detonated beneath the German lines and the thousands of men that were killed and the fighting which then took place on each side of the crater as they pushed forward towards the village of La Boussel, it's pretty emotive stuff and I don't think you need too much more to understand exactly what went on. Interestingly, when I, the very few times I actually lead tours these days, I don't take the groups to Loch Nagar anymore. I take them to Hawthorne Ridge Mine Crater, which is not too far away and which only very recently has been uh, made accessible by adding a pathway and and clearing it out quite a bit. And it is much more in its natural state, and you can walk down to the bottom of of Hawthorne Ridge Crater. And I find Hawthorne Ridge tells a much better story because it's simply been, there's not as much work has been done on it. So I don't take people to Loch Nagar anymore. I take them to uh, to Hawthorne Ridge. What are your thoughts about that, Pete? Yeah, no, I agree entirely, and I do exactly the same. I think one of the issues as well is is because of where it is and the success and the fact that coaches can now be parts alongside of it at the busy periods. Um, you know, I've, I've driven up there, and there there are six coaches of of school kids there. Well. Thankfully, it can now take six coaches at a at a squeeze, uh, but uh, that number, many number of people are running around the, the lip of the crater makes it just distracting. Now, I'm not saying I, I actually enjoy that the people are coming. I mean, thank, thankfully, those those school children hopefully will take something away and it will lead them to be interested and in, and continue that interest in the Great War into their adult lives. But but it still is just too many at, at one at one one location. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we all get back to touring again after after we've got rid of this terrible disease and uh, and whether we will get the numbers that we had. I, I suspect we will eventually, um, and hopefully people will still visit the uh, the site. Um, but yeah, there are alternatives, and I think that's the key. There are alternatives if you don't want to uh, uh, to be in a place that uh, feels slightly almost too touristy now. 
one of the other issues I've had, Pete, I don't know if he's still there, but the last couple of times I went there was a bloke who had a little van set up and he was selling artifacts that he'd found on the battlefield. And as much as I tried to tell people on the coach not to buy anything, someone would always invariably come back with a grenade or something that was going to give them all sorts of problems when they tried to get on their flight home. So, um, again, I'm not a big fan at all of people that go out and, and, and pilfer the battlefields and then try to sell it to tourists. So I, I'm always happy to stay away from any little uh, people trying to, trying to set up little markets in battlefield relics. But I don't know if that guy's still there. <laughs> he is. Thankfully, it's a lot more regulated uh, than it used to be. In fact, uh, he had to be properly regulated to remain there, and he has a bit a uh, little hut that's probably fairly professional now, and things sorted, and so it's not like it used to be again. Things have things have moved on. Things have changed. Um, but you're right. I think it's there's an element of it being slightly distasteful when people sell things found, uh, found on the on the battlefields. But he also sells other little souvenirs for, especially for for uh, the students to pick up and, and take home. The other thing that's good about um, that is very good about La Boisselle Crater is it gives you a wonderful view of this ground we're talking about. And uh, if if you can't actually walk up Sausage Gully because there's crops in the field, you can stand on the lip of the crater and have a, 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 a brilliant view straight up the, the gully um, from a perspective that lots of photos were taken as well. So you can uh, do a then and now comparison of what it was like with all the all the troops going up and down. Uh, but uh, just a, it's a fascinating area. And this is probably the central point of it. When If you want to stand in the footsteps of the Australians, and march in the footsteps of the Australians as they approach the killing fields of Pozier, then Sausage Gully is certainly the place to do it. Pete, let's talk a bit about now that the next passage, which talks about the, the, the artillery positions, because, of course, when you find an area that is sheltered like this gully was from observation and from a little bit from shellfire, it's not just men and infantry and supplies that are stored there. You also get, uh, you also get artillery as well. So let's hear what Bean had to say about the artillery batteries in Sausage Gully. So they are, they are going to be directly below us, and uh, as Matt said, one of the the reasons if you're doing this tour, if you're if you're wanting to follow in the footsteps, you really have to go to Loch Nagar to get that view. It is a fantastic view up the valley, so we can walk uh, into the valley. There is a road that runs past Loch Nagar, so we can walk uh, into the valley and be actually in the base of the valley. If the seasons are right, we can then walk up the valley, and we're walking into where all of these these guns are. So this is uh, Charles Bean. Near the crests were numerous field batteries in their firing positions, while across the main track lower down the, the valley were ranged four old 4.7-inch guns, whose blasts constantly shocked troops or transport marching up and down the valley, and was uh, stated to have blown more than one unsuspecting rider off his horse. Lower down still were the emplacements of heavier guns, mostly covered with those loose canopy of netting in which tufts of dried raffia had been tied to screen the monsters below from the observation of enemy aircraft. Isn't that a fascinating account? Just, just uh, firstly, very descriptive. You, you feel like you're almost there, but I love the idea of the four old 4.7-inch guns. Uh, these are the guns that were taken off Navy ships normally and, and pressed into service as artillery pieces. Pretty old and pretty loud and uh, the idea that troops, as they were marching up, had to walk straight past these things, blasting away. And as, as Bean says, uh, it was stated to have blown more than one unsuspecting rider off his horse. You can just imagine the concussion as these big old things went off. And then a little bit further down the valley, the really big artillery guns screened with netting to, uh, to keep them hidden from enemy aircraft. Just, I mean, again, Pete, the one thing I always come back to that we can never fully comprehend, particularly when we visit the peaceful battlefields today, is the noise the noise of war. And it was one one veteran I spoke to from the Second World War when he was talking about the fighting in North Africa around Tobruk. He just said the noise was unbelievable. And it's you speak to Vietnam veterans and they say the same thing. When it, when a battle is going on, it's it's horrendous, the, the cacophony that accompanies it. 
I think what's what's rather horrific about these, especially the four point uh, uh, four point seven inch uh, howitzers, because that's what they are. They're they're howitzers. They fire on a very high trajectory because their shells are going to try and drop into the, the enemy's trenches. Well, if you're firing on a high trajectory, that means that the, uh, the the they can park quite close to roadways because they're firing up in the air almost, which means that people can walk almost right past the barrels of them. So that's why he comments upon the uh, that people were. Uh, were made to jump and in fact I'm just going to read a passage from a book called uh, uh, Jacker's Mob uh, by um, it's uh, it was written it's a diary in a diary form written by a chap called Edgar John Rule who served in the 14th Battalion AIF uh, which is uh, uh, Jacker who was a Wally the Victoria Cross at Gallipoli um, and he describes very very well uh, actually entering uh, Sausage Valley and, and moving up it so I'll just I just find the right paragraph and I'll I'll read it so here we are just as we reached the edge of Sausage Valley, a battery of our heavies, our own heavies, opened and frightened the life out of us. I'll never forget the expression on the Major's face uh, as he dropped considerably in my estimation, although the precise reason for this would be hard to explain. Sausage Valley was a famous place in those days, being the main avenue of approach to a great part of the left of the Somme fighting. I remember it as a long, narrow valley, two or three hundred yards across, by the number of guns all along it. It must have been the best hiding place for artillery in this part of the field. Nearly everyone in describing the place said the guns were wheel to wheel along it. Actually, they were not as thick as, as all that, but there was an impressive loss of guns all the same. So that gives you an idea of how many guns were in the valley. And we have to remember as well that we're talking now about Australian troops their first time in the line. So probably when they came into Sausage Gully, this was the first time they had been anywhere near artillery. And the noise when those things went off, as he said, and the, the look on the poor old Major's face when that gun went off, it would have been absolutely terrifying. And um, I can understand it. Why? I can understand why. I'll just read a little bit more. I just noticed I stopped a little early. Um, as we went up the gully, the gunners didn't take the least notice of us, but kept on loading and firing. By the time we'd reached the head of it, where the 18-pounders were, we were a trifle deaf. <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up pretty neatly, doesn't it? Just uh, How did they ever recover? after? And, it, and this is just their own gunfire. Imagine then being under enemy shelling with the shells landing all around you, because they sadly would be in a way they never could have expected during the fighting at Pozier. Just, again, I think elements we don't think of. We don't think about marching up to the line past guns that are... <laughs> terrifying in the in the noise and and anyone who's ever even been around a ceremonial artillery piece firing to mark the time or a, or a you know, special occasion they're bloody loud is the only way they can be summed up this would have been beyond comprehension pete you in your military service spent quite a bit of time around guns and mortars and artillery what what's it like to be out in the field when these things are going off deafening uh i didn't ever see any combat so i can't quote anything to do with combat but i suppose one location where I saw more things firing than any other would have been a, a firepower demonstration. We used to get uh, people come in to see what we could do to an enemy position. And uh, and so a firepower demonstration meant we were in our slit trench firing as fast as we could and everything was firing over the top of us and truly deafening and slightly worrying. It was the first time I realised that you could see mortar rounds in flight because a mortar round, as it gets to the top of its trajectory, becomes visible just for a short period before it starts dropping. And so if you're right underneath them and you're looking up, it was fascinating just to keep watching these mortar rounds suddenly appear as they reach the top of their trajectory and then then disappear as they sped up again towards the ground. So, yeah, very, very noisy. It's a common... Uh, it's a common 
description from soldiers in the front line as well during the First World War that often, not just mortar rounds, but often they could see big old heavy shells. They could often see them lumbering through the air as they came down towards them. And again, the, the, the terror of, uh, of being under shell fire, you just can't describe it. And I think that's the thing that sums up Posi Air. The, the, the basic idea, and we'll discuss this during when we do a walk of the battlefield itself, but that the the shelling was something beyond endurance for the men, the, the, the nature of shelling. By the time the Australians had dug in on captured positions on Posier, the, the rest of the Battle of the Somme had really died down, and so the Germans were free to concentrate their artillery uh, just on the Australians, and you know, dozens of shells a minute were landing on the Australians, just absolutely horrific. And that's what caused most of the casualties at Posier, was just the relentless and horrific shelling. So let's move on from the artillery, Pete, and read the next section, because... Now we're getting into an area which is, I won't say unchanged, but very traceable from how Bean describes that you can walk this ground very, uh, very accurately on the ground. So let's talk about that. Here's the next next section of the approach to Pozier. A trench tramway from the outskirts of Albert had now reached a point near the head of the valley, and a supply dump had been formed there known as Gordon Dump, its name being the only relic of Gordon Post, the scene of famous fighting by the 34th Division on July 1st. On the opposite bank, among the, tangle, the tumbled remains of German trenches, was the entrance to a deep and especially well-furnished enemy dugout, now used as a headquarters of a British brigade. Now, the dugout is long gone. There's no, more, there's no longer any dugouts in, in Sausage Gully, but of course it gives a great impression of the fact that men would, would dig their way into the, the, uh, the slopes, the lee slopes of these hills so that they were protected from artillery. And uh, in some areas there are still, uh, still dugouts that you can find in this part of the Somme. But Pete... Gordon Dump. Tell us about Gordon Post becoming Gordon Dump and what there is there today. Well, I think the first thing to talk about is the name. It's a cemetery uh, and it's called Gordon Dump Cemetery. And that always gives people a kind of a, a funny feeling. You're thinking, why would you call uh, a cemetery a dump? Um, well, in this case, it's because of it's the I always describe it as a crossover point. This is where rear echelon troops bringing in supplies, perhaps lorries, perhaps uh, uh, handballed up, but carried up and they're dropped off here because the Army Service Corps, other people bringing supplies up, do not go into the front line because they're not frontline soldiers. So that means frontline soldiers have to come from the front line to pick up those grenades, that, that ammunition, that water, whatever it is that it is, that food. And so we get these dumping off positions. So it's a swap of a position from rear echelon guys to frontline guys. It's also the same for the medical services. Frontline stretcher bearers, the battalion stretcher bearers, will try and bring their wounded out of the line and they will bring them to an aid post. Uh, and they will leave them there uh, with the RAMC, the, the medical services, who will then move them even further back, having treated them, uh, done some triage at these locations. Sadly, not everybody will survive that triage, and so there needs to be a place where they can they can actually bury them. So Gordon Dump Cemetery was created because it's that crossover point as wounded soldiers are being slowly removed uh, out of the fighting line and further back. So that's how we, how we get the name. It's a dumping off point for supplies, but it's also a changeover point for the wounded. So that's how we get that, that name. Um, it's a beautiful cemetery because you cannot drive to it. You have to uh, use the main road, the road that actually uh, takes you from Labasselle to Contalmaison. You can stop at the top and then you walk down the track uh, to the cemetery uh, itself. Beautiful rubble wall uh, around it. It's it's quite a, relatively speaking, quite a big cemetery to be so far away from a road. There are 1,680 soldiers buried or commemorated here. Um, 
And this is where we get the sad, the sad aspect of it. The original cemetery where the medical services were burying people, there were only 95 soldiers in that cemetery. So it originally was a very small battlefield cemetery. 95 soldiers, almost all of them Australian. 91 of the 95 are Australian. So we can see when this cemetery really was, was being used. It's during the, the period that we're talking about. But at the end of the war, it becomes a concentration cemetery. And that's how we get the uh, the enormous number 1,680. But also being a concentration cemetery, and we've talked about this before, you're finding people on the battlefield, you're exhuming them, you're moving them into this cemetery. The majority are unidentifiable by name. So of that 1,680, 1,053 are unidentified. Um, so very, very sad again. I always, uh, always kind of hate it, but uh, at least they've got a burial location, even though we don't know who they are. Um, it was designed by Herbert Baker, one of the great and goods of the architects designing these cemeteries. Um, and I always mention them because it's well worth mentioning. Uh, there is a soldier who was awarded the Victoria Cross buried here, Lieutenant uh, Donald Simpson Bell, serving in the 9th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment. And he was killed at Contal Mason. And he's commemorated there in a location known as Bell's Redoubt, which is where he sadly lost his life. Not where he was awarded the Victoria Cross. That was slightly before that. Um, he's an interesting chap because he's, he was a professional footballer before the war and the first professional footballer to volunteer to join up. So he's, uh, he, he's quite well remembered. It's a beautiful cemetery, Pete. And there's a couple of things about it. Firstly, these cemeteries are tangible connections with the fighting because it's called Gordon Dump Cemetery. Obviously, there's no longer supplies of ammunition and barbed wire and food and everything else that soldiers needed. That's long gone. But the, the cemetery still marks the location of Gordon Dump, which would have been a site that soldiers knew very, very well. Uh, but also, you think about that original cemetery, the you know, the, 90, the the 95 soldiers, 91 of which are Australian. This, this cemetery was there at the time that we're describing when Bean talks about these troops going up to the front line, the the aid post and the cemetery had already begun. So there might have only been a handful of graves there at that time. Most of the graves would come from later fighting. But again, just imagine what it meant to those troops. They're, they're literally hours into the, the the fighting of the First World War. They've been in Albert and now they've come forward and this is their first experience of anything near the front line. Imagine marching up and seeing that aid post with wounded in it and, and, the, and the small number of headstones there. And of course, the saddest thing to think about is the 91 Australian soldiers that made up that cemetery um, in, in later fighting, those men probably marched past it on the way up to the front line. So imagine, they obviously couldn't have known it at the time, but many of those men that walked up there were actually looking at their own burial place as they, as they went past. So I, I always think about that. And in fact, it was, only, it was only a couple of years ago that I first went to Gordon Dump Cemetery the way you're supposed to. We actually pulled up, someone wanted to visit a, we were on a tour and someone wanted to visit a, a headstone there. I think it was Adam Bloom, actually. I think the, the Blooms were there and a good, a dear, a dear, a fan, a good, uh, good, uh, good friends of the show, Adam and um, and his family, and uh, they wanted to visit a grave there. So we stopped on the road and walked down the grass path. That was actually the first time I'd been to Gordon Dump from any other way, except scrambling up to it from behind from uh, from Sausage Gully. So it, it made me realise what a beautiful place it, it actually is, but also one of those places that I do really appreciate the significance of the connection with the history. And as we say, Charles Bean. Decades before that, you know, we were coming there and, and visiting it as a, as a cemetery. Was talking about it and and the uh, the location as a, and what it meant to the troops. I think it's interesting the number of of people writing even at this time during the fighting or just after the fighting who were very much aware that this was going to be historic. 
Uh, and we're writing from the point of view is I wonder if people will come here to look at this. Will this cemetery remain permanent? Will these dugouts be here? Will they preserve this bit of the landscape? Uh, and I think you know, there was, I think, a need, a need from some of these men that they hoped that some of this would be preserved, that some of it would remain, that some of it would be remembered. You know, if, if you're potentially going to lose your life, you'd like to think that somebody will perhaps will come and visit where you lost your life or hopefully where you're where you're buried or commemorated. And, and obviously we do. And, but I think they recognised it at the time. It's a it's a really wonderful spot, and uh, just to feel that connection. And again, I mean, it goes without saying. If you ever go past a military cemetery when you're in Europe, stop and visit it. It's just fascinating. Not just Europe, and sadly, in all parts of the world, a lot through Asia. You know, some in Australia as well. So if you ever pass a military cemetery, always call in and have a look. They're they're absolutely fascinating places. And this one, if we don't, if we haven't accessed Gordon Dump by the the approach road, and we're still in Sausage Gully, we can actually carry on a little bit further uh, up the gully. So Pete, let's read the next section about getting to the head of, of Sausage Gully. Now, this is an interesting and rather sad aspect. They've planted a new wood here at the head of the valley. And so we don't no longer have the view that we would have done as we as we crest the, the, uh, the, the head of the valley because there's this brand new wood there and it's getting larger. So I've always been a, a little bit aggrieved that they went and planted the wood there. But life goes on. And we, we have to say, thankfully, life goes on uh, because uh, uh, because the, the Germans do not control it and, and things have not changed. It is exactly as it was before the First World War. And you have to say the farming life here is very similar to as it was before the First World War. Anyway, I'll continue reading uh, uh, Bean's description. Sausage Valley ended at a crossroads which came from Labasel and was allotted as an alternate route for the Australian troops and their transport. And I'm just going to interrupt uh, the, this account. So that is the road. That is the road. If we'd been driving along the road, that's the road that you would have driven in on. Its uh, farther or northern side was protected by one of those low natural banks or lichets which are common in the chalk country of England or France. Formed not by intention, but by the result of hundreds of years of ploughing, which has gradually altered the surface level of the fields, some th uh, sometimes causing stretches of road to be sunken, or the sloping countryside to be terraced with steep scrubby banks separating several expanses of ploughland. This particular bank was just sufficient to give partial protection to men behind it. A wayfarer coming across the battlefield by day saw over it the hilltop reaching bare and almost level for a mile, to where a line of ragged cops straggled across a wide sector of the horizon and the back gardens and orchards of Poissiere. So that's the end of his account. And sadly, that's the view we don't have. We, from this point, we cannot see Poissiere at all now because of, of the trees. Also, Charles Bean isn't quite quite accurate in how these lanes were created and how the fields were created. The uh, strip lichets which we have um, are not caused by ploughing. They were actually caused by the farmers cutting. Um, and we're talking, we're going back centuries here, but cutting shells into the banks. So it, it is formed by, not by just natural ploughing, it was deliberate by the farmers uh, to give them more, more farming. And all of the sunken roads, and what he's describing here is a sunken road at the top, um, is because of wear. It is wear of carts and people and tracks going backwards and forwards. They're normally on slopes uh, that, that causes the road to literally sink into the, the landscape. So he's, he's almost right, but just not quite right in, in how they were created. 
And this countryside is perfect for them. It's chalk, and chalk weathers quite rapidly. So chalk wears, so you're wearing into the chalk landscape. And we should have mentioned it earlier. We are on chalk here. This is very much a landscape on on solid chalk. There is only literally a couple of feet, a couple of meters of soil before you hit the chalk. It's it's not low, uh, not far below the soil level. We should hark back to one of our earliest episodes, Pete. I'm kind of remember whether it might have been it might have been episode one where we did the sunken road or the sunken lane on the Somme. We talked about that uh, separate area of the battlefield of the Somme, but but the but certainly go back and listen to that one if you haven't heard it because we talk more about the, this feature of the landscape and the sunken lanes, the sunken roads on the Somme are a key feature. They're a key feature of the landscape today. When you visit, they've been a key feature for centuries, but a really important feature during the fighting of the First World War simply because they were they were trenches effectively they were natural trenches across the landscape and and the soldiers used them in many of the great attacks we talk about the you know the famous attack well from the sunken lane uh, during the on the first day of the battle of the somme when we talk about the australians attacking at bullecourt attacking from a sunken road we talk about lots of the fighting in 1918 1916 throughout the war the sunken lanes and the sunken roads are a vital feature of the of the battlefield they had pros and cons, of course, is the one aspect of a sunken road and not a trench is it's on all the maps. So it means that the Germans who had the same maps as us originally, they would have uh, had normal French maps and then converted them uh, with uh, uh, with their cartographers into trench maps. And so they would know where all the sunken lanes were. And so sunken lanes were always targeted. They were always shelled because they knew that troops would use them. So a sunken lane was gave you an element of safety, but there was also a risk that it could be shelled while you were you were within it. So always in the sunken lanes, you have dugouts at the sides of the sunken lanes, so soldiers could scramble into dugouts. They had sandbags at the front of their dugouts to try and protect them from shells bursting on the road. Um, so yeah, there's this double-edged sword. Sunken lanes great for hiding in, for, for attacking from, but normally the enemy knows where they are. It's extraordinary the number, of, especially officers. You read about officers being killed by shells in sunken roads, and I, I think that's because that's, as you say, that's where headquarters were based and in dugouts, and yeah. and it was quite it, it, not uh, surprisingly common to hear about a you know a conference taking place between several officers and a shell landing and and killing them all, and 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 that was certainly the reason that uh, the, the sunken roads were so well marked on maps and so well known to uh, to the Germans and the enemy artillerymen. But we're going to. Uh, I'm, I also have to add here, Pete. I'm disappointed about those trees there because I remember again the first time I did this walk, inadvertently popping out of Sausage Gully and realizing I was standing there and looking at exactly that view that being described, looking a mile down the slope to well the rebuilt village of Pozier. But sharing that view with the troops was uh, was was something quite extraordinary. It's disappointing you can't have that today. But as you say, time goes on. No, thank, thankfully, as you walk down through this wooded area now towards Casualty Corner, and we're going to uh, mention, uh, read the scripts uh, from Bean's uh, accounts, but uh, we get when we get to Casualty Corner and hang that left and head towards Poisier, then it opens up again and we get the, the view again. So it's, it doesn't take it away too much, but, but and thankfully the road's in the same place, so at least you're walking on the, the, the same road. Let's read the next section as the troops came out. I'll, uh, I'll read this passage describing what they saw as they came out of, uh, of Sausage Gully. From that road bank forward, any troops who moved by day across the open would be in full view of both the Germans in the in front of the village and of those beyond it in the OG lines whose parapet could just be seen of it ribbing the skyline. The new British trenches in front of Pozier could barely be distinguished by anyone standing at the head of Sausage Gully, but the left of them could be reached from that point by a torturous communication trench, partly old German reserve line and partly new trench dug by the 34th Division. 
Usually, however, troops making their way to the front turned sharply to the right along the road, which almost at once became enclosed between steep banks. Moving between these, over the spur forming the right of Sausage Gully, and thence down towards the next dip, which the road crossed on an embankment or causeway, and I'm going to jump in here to say Bean sometimes trips over himself with his own descriptions here. This is a good example of that. I'll try that again. Moving between these at once, these once became enclosed between steep banks, moving between these over the spur, forming the right of Sausage Gully, and thence down towards the next dip, which the road crossed on an embankment or causeway that that would at once behold on the far side of that valley and a few hundred yards ahead, the ruins of Contalmaison. Men making towards the southwestern end of Pozier did not proceed across Contalmaison Valley, but turned sharply to the left at a steep cut in the road bank, the site of a medical aid post, and afterwards known, both for that reason and from the danger of the position, as Casualty Corner, and headed along an open white crossroads straight for the end of the village. Pete, Casualty Corner, one of the most famous sites on the Pozier battlefield. We'll put the photo up, the famous photo of Australian machine gunners marching out of the line past Casualty Corner, and a wonderful spot because unlike most places on the Somme battlefield, which were completely obliterated, you can stand in exactly that spot in the footsteps of the Australian soldiers. Just a really great place to visit. Yep, and I was there about a month ago. Uh, Sarah and myself, we went out, uh, the children were at school, and we went out for a long walk, and we started in Contal Maison, and we cut across the fields and came up uh, behind uh, Casualty Corner. And the description is spot on. It's long-winded, and it and it just gets a bit complicated when you're trying to follow it. Uh, but actually, if you know the area well, you realise that Charles Bean is describing it fairly well. It's uh, it's it's a good description of a very famous location. Um, it's still there, so it's a crossroads. Uh, the cross the the crossroads, the bit that we're going to follow, is not a it's not a, a vehicle uh, road. It's it is a walking cattle. Uh, a road, a farmer's road, um, and the main road is the one that will lead you from um, uh, Labasel to uh, Contal Maison. And um, so it's it's a safe little place. You can stand there, and you only have to look in two directions. And as you turn left and start walking towards Poisier, you get a real, real feel that you are seriously walking in the footsteps of uh, of the men that move to the front line here. And I think it's because this is when it started to become real. As they turned left here from being within these enclosed uh, sunken road, the banks of the sunken road, as you turned left, then you become much more open much more visible to the uh, your enemy in Poisier so it's uh, yeah it's it's where everything started to become real i think for the soldiers who were approaching the front line having said that there was enough cover within these banks that allowed for that medical post and i found a great photo only only recently only this year in fact of a motorized ambulance there and it it wasn't a location that i could think that a motorized ambulance would want to get to because it's seriously dangerous turning round would be seriously dangerous but there it is there is a motorized ambulance at casualty corner picking up casualties and whistling them back towards Labasel and uh, albert and to the rear areas so they actually managed to get motorized uh, ambulances up, up to to this point so yeah it's a, it's a it's a really emotive location you're so right pete it's um it's a fascinating spot one of the Best spots on the Posier battlefield, I think, in addition to the main memorials. But just to describe a little bit about what it was like, we've got a couple of quotes here of troops and their experience with going past Casualty Corner. And so this is, this is from the official history in describing just what it was like going past. The road past Casualty Corner to Contel Maison was intermittently swept with shrapnel and high explosive and drenched with phos- phosgene gas shells. At times, the corner could only be passed by men running one at a time, those who were hit had to crawl away from the place as best they could, 
their mates having at that moment one paramount duty to reach the starting point for the attack. So doesn't that describe the frenzy of activity that was going on there as men rushing in ones and twos around the corner so heavily shelled and being describing three types of shell there, shrapnel shells, high explosive shells and gas shells and the corner just being so heavily shelled that the men just had to run in small groups of ones and twos to get around the bend. And uh, if you were unfortunately wounded, you had to crawl away as best you could so you didn't block the place up. That was in later fighting. That was in an advance uh, when, when there was a big attack going on at Pozier and men desperately had to get to the front line in the thick of the fighting. But it just uh, gives a great indication as to why it was called Casualty Corner. And Pete, you've got another um, quote, I believe, describing uh, what the troops experienced there. So this is Jacker's mob again by Edgar John Rule. Um, and he's describing being at exactly the, uh, the same location. Um, Here we halted for a while to allow each party to pick up its proper interval for the next ahead. While we waited, we watched one long stream of wounded men coming back on stretchers. And the whole way along the track, we passed the walking wounded. One shell-shot case stood out in my mind. He came along, the picture of terror, and trembling from head to foot. His leg trembled so much that they just about carried him, and that was all. When we got going again, we reached a road which turned to the right, so this is them hitting the, the main road to Contal Maison. For quite a long way, it had a Hessian screen beside it to prevent the Hun from seeing too much, and further along it developed into a sunken road where some Aussies were living. Now this is, uh, this is Casualty Corner. In this road we walked on what seemed to be fair mud, but when you lifted your foot the mud rose again beneath your sole like India rubber. Later we found out the cause. A few hundred yards further on, we turned to the left into another gully. So this is them turning left and heading towards Poissier. And followed it along for about 800 or 900 yards. Halfway up this gully was brigade headquarters. Right alongside it were a couple of captured German field guns with black watch written on them. That's a British, uh, well it's Scottish, a Scottish regiment. Um, then we were told to get into a communication trench and our bombers were directed to follow one particular company and, and on he goes uh, heading up to the uh, to the front line. And this is where he starts to see casualties and, uh, and wounded men and, de- and dead men on the, uh, on the track. So it's a, a great description and starts to give you a feel of what it was like as you headed towards Poissier. And let's carry on now, Pete, because we're going to head into that sunken track that leads directly towards the village. And again, walking exactly in the footsteps of of the Australian troops. And every time I walk this stretch of ground, I just think about the numbers of men that were killed and wounded here. So tens of thousands of Australians marched up this this, this laneway, this sunken track towards Pozier. And so many of them just didn't come back. This is a, a, an extraordinary place to walk in the footsteps of the Aussies. So Pete, why don't you read uh, what it's like to walk up this track? This road led through a wide, shallow depression, really the head of uh, Contal Mason Valley. Out of view of the enemy, in the gentle slope on its right, half a mile forward, there opened out the white quarry known as the Chalk Pit, in which had been established a small forward dump of grenades and other medical aid posts. So the Chalk Pit, Peter, again, one of the most significant sites in the battlefield. Every Aussie knew it, and many of them mentioned it. It's it's a little bit disappointing today. It's a bit of a garbage dump today. You can't really go in there. But just, again, an iconic spot on the Pozier battlefield. Yeah, it irritates me, actually, when you when you go down there. It has altered. The, the quarry was continued to be used when they started rebuilding the villages. Uh, then the quarry was used again. So it, it, it was a much bigger quarry. But still, uh, it's... Um, it, 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 should be preserved and actually if you read the signage outside of it it says it's a nature reserve but we're not allowed to go into it 
And I think it's a great shame. It has been tidied up. It was a bit of a rubbish dump, and I suspect a lot of the rubbish is still there, but it now says it's a nature reserve. Um, I think they could do an awful lot more with this, and I wish something would be done with it to allow us to actually uh, go and have a look, because it was a, a spot remembered by almost everybody. Everybody that fought at Poissier went past it, near it, picked up ammunition, was wounded and lay there waiting to be uh, uh, to be evacuated. So it's a very, very well-known spot and is commented upon on almost every first-hand account of the fighting will comment uh, upon the, uh, uh, the the quarry. We've also just passed the concrete bunker, which is very easy to miss. It's on the right-hand side as we walk towards Poisier, and it's one of the... We don't get very many uh, concrete bunkers in this uh, this part of the battlefield, so it's nice to see a concrete bunker. It was obviously used as a... Uh, I would suggest a policing point where somebody, an officer or a group of officers would be policing who was coming and going from there. Uh, It's no firing positions. It is just uh, a place where you could shelter from the shell fire and uh, it's right on the uh, the edge of the track. So well worth going to have a look at. And again, uh, very kindly, somebody's dug it out recently, so it's a lot more visible than it used to be. So well worth uh, going to have a look at. Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it? It's It's really like a concrete dugout. It's a combination of the two of them. It's dug into the bank. Uh, so it's not really a freestanding pillbox or bunker like you see. It's it's really a reinforced dugout. So perhaps a headquarters or an aid post at some stage during the fighting. But it's not mentioned. Bean earlier on in our quote, Bean did mention a, a large dugout, but this isn't the one he's referring to. That was further back in Sausage Valley. But of course, there would have been dugouts and bunkers and 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 various emplacements along just about every stretch of this road. So so uh, the, it's it's fascinating. There's still one left. Yeah, it it is, and uh, yeah, we can only guess as to what it would uh, would be. But I get the feeling that just where it is that it may have been used just for monitoring who was coming and going. Because remember, they were they were checking that people weren't running away and checking that people uh, who were being evacuated honestly had been wounded. And I just kind of it gets that that feel of almost a sentry position, looking at who's coming and going along the road. Certainly, well worth looking at. We're uh, we're not too far from Posier now. We get to the chalk pit, and uh, we're we're entering a very famous section of the road. So this is well, this is the last of our section on the approach route to approach route to to Posier. This is what Bean had to say about the last section of road. Uh, it's it's last, but certainly not least in importance. This is what Bean had to say: a quarter of a mile beyond this, he means beyond the chalk pit, in a low bank some distance to the right of the road, had been cut a narrow chalky niche serving as a battalion as a battle headquarters for a battalion 200 yards 200 yards north of this point the road became slightly sunken and ran on between low banks into the trees of Pozier in this sunken track sometimes known later as dead man's road the troops repulsed in former attacks had tended to congregate the new british lines before Pozier with their one or two short avenues of communication narrow irregular trenches cut through the turf and the brown topsoil ran out into its banks and it's still fairly similar pete as you come up here Again, the, the the aptly named Dead Man's Road. Just imagine the the weight that carried as you as you walked, marched into the line at Posey. And by the time the troops got here, they knew they were in the thick of the action. And as described there, the the British had dug trenches leading out of the out of the road at this point to to lead into their attacks on Posey. Because Posey had been attacked earlier during the Battle of the Somme. We think of it as an, an Australian action, but the British had been here before us and had uh, and dug uh, dug a lot of trenches and had some pretty heavy fighting in this area. And Again, imagine coming through there and finding that men milling around, you know, men who were repulsed in former attacks. So an attack had gone in, half your battalion was wiped out, men retreated, but then they didn't know where to go. They, and they, they tended to congregate. And this was a, a feature of the war. Again, we don't really think about it. We think of troops knowing what they're supposed to be doing and taking part in these gallant actions. But often if an, if an attack was not successful, the troops would retreat. 
and then simply gather around. What are we supposed to do next? Waiting for orders. And, and they would obviously do that in a safe place. And this was one of those places. Another one that uh, is similar is uh, the, uh, the railway embankment on, at Passchendaele, where a famous photo was taken of Australian troops sheltering in the embankment. That was after the attack had been, uh, had been unsuccessful. The troops had pulled back out of the line. And until you could organise them, they tended to gather in whatever safe place provided them a measure of protection. And so this was um, certainly one of those points. It was also during the Gallipoli campaign a bit of an issue for the British that Aussie troops would go up and, and fight. Uh, but if the attack was not successful, they then tend to come back down and just mill around on the beach. So the pers- this perspective from the British was that the Australians were shirking a little bit by not, not pushing on into the line. But I think that's greatly unfair that... The, the 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 idea is that troops, especially if they've lost their leaders um, in every battlefield of every war, those troops will tend to leave the line and congregate wherever they uh, wherever they're safe until uh, until they get further orders. I also think that everybody wants to be the best that they can be and likes to think they are. And so you get uh, British regiments vying against each other constantly, saying, oh, it was their fault, no, it was their fault that this didn't work. And uh, and I, th- I think it's a good thing because uh, it, it enhances the esprit de corps of each individual unit and uh, and makes you try and work better together to, to have a, have success. I think it's fascinating. The, the thing that we, again, these things that perhaps we, we don't think about the layers of fighting during the First World War is these troops have trained together and they've trained with their officers and their leaders uh, to, um, you know, to, 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 to be the best fighting unit they could be. But that all goes very, very wrong when, uh, when they suffer casualties. If they lose their officers, um, it, it can be difficult for the men to regroup. That would change later in the war. They, the troops in every unit, and not just the Australians, the British as well, became quite expert at leading themselves as they lost their leaders. But particularly in this earlier fighting, it could be quite devastating for those troops so they would assemble in this area uh, of, of Dead Man's Road. But this is also the point where the communication trenches cut into the cut into the sunken road. Communication trench is a trench that leads to the front line as opposed to running along the front line. And uh, this is where the troops would then fan out and head out into the killing fields of Pozier, an amazing spot whenever you walk it, just to think as you just approach the town and the, the road is less sunken and you, you start to you, you come to the main road of Pozier to just think that at this point troops were fanning out and heading out into those killing fields from which many of them would never return. It's 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 an emotive point, Pete, isn't it? It is indeed, and very very obvious to to see where that's happening. Because as you're walking, you suddenly, as your he- head starts to rise on the crest, and you you think, well, I can see the whole of Pozier now, and so that means the whole of Pozier can see me. So you know, roughly, you can work out where the trench is fanned out. I mean, you can use a trench map. You can actually pace it out. You can use now technical gear like linesmen. We've mentioned it before, which actually puts you on the position on on a map uh, on on a, a handheld device, so you can see exactly where you are and. Uh, but nowadays you you can do that. But literally, it's how I enjoy walking the battlefield. Is just thinking. Well, now I'm visible, so I must be in a trench from now on. So left and right, you can work it out quite easy. And and very often you can just about make out where the trenches were, depending on what farming's taken place in the fields around you. You can also tell what was going on in the minds of the troops at this point. That once they finish their march, approach march. This is really the end of the approach march and the beginning of the fighting proper. That they're now going into proper trenches. They're getting ready to fight. And there's, there's always, to me, it's a bit of a telltale spot here because the number of times I've found things in this area left behind by the troops. Um, and you can I think just about every time I've been here, you find some pretty remarkable things. And you know why that is. This is the point where the troops are getting discarding gear that they've decided they don't need or someone's been wounded, so they're taking the gear off him or wounded are coming out of the line, so they're stripping gear off them before they carry them back. 
Um, but I think at these points, these transition points you mentioned earlier, Pete, it's where you do tend to find quite a bit of quite a lot of relics because it's a natural point for troops to discard anything they don't need. You know, perhaps their entrenching tool was damaged on the way up, or so this is the spot they'd get rid of it before they go into the line proper. Um, so last time I was there, there was a Mills bomb, a hand grenade, just sitting in the soil next to the, you know, in the side of the road. I found a, you know, an Australian entrenching tool. Um, the, the 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 blade off the entrenching tool was there. Um, yeah, it's it's remarkable just the little bits and pieces you find that tell the story of what was going on on the ground. It is interestingly going back to the the book I'm quoting from Jacker's Mob. Um, the 14th Battalion dumped their blankets. They had rolled blankets on the on the on their packs, and literally a guy came and said, "Mate, you're not going to need that. You are not going to be wrapping yourself in a blanket anywhere around here. You know, you're going to be fighting uh, until you leave. You will not be sleeping. You will not need your blanket. Get rid of it. It's also the middle of the summer, so the temperatures don't drop to a, a, a horrendous. Well, hopefully they don't drop to a horrendous level. So they dumped their blankets there, threw their blankets away into the into the into the paddocks." It's an area I think that if you, um, I've I've often walked along the the tops of the bank here on the in the fields on either side because I I've I've always I've long had this ambition to find an Australian Rising Sun badge on the battlefield, and I, it occurs to me that if I was going to find one anywhere on the entire Western Front, this this stretch of ground is probably the most likely point to find it just because of the number of men that that were either killed or wounded or wounded and had their jackets taken off at this point, and just the, the sheer number of traffic that came through here and the number of casualties that occurred. I, I've been unsuccessful so far, but. Uh, I know that down at La Tommy Cafe in Pozier, which we'll feature in a future podcast, there is a number of Rising Sun uh, collar badges that uh, have been found uh, in this area. So just uh, this is bringing us to the end of the walk, Pete. It's a remarkable spot. It does indeed. And I'd just like to add that in 20 years of living here, I've still not found one. And I, and I look. <laughs> the race is on. The race is on. <laughs> I, I was at, again, one of our little tangents, but uh, in about, I think it was 2013, when I was at Gallipoli, um, with a, I, I was not leading the tour, but I ran into one of our tour groups and they were quite excited that on the battlefield of Krithia, which was a relatively small action for the Australians compared to what went on at a place like Pozier, one of the passengers on the coach was very delighted that he had a collar badge from an Australian soldier in his hand that he'd found on that battlefield, which is obviously an extraordinary relic, the most important thing. And, you know, we, we always say on this podcast that we don't, we, we don't encourage people to collect things from the battlefield. But I tell you what, if you are fortunate enough to find an Australian <laughs> Rising Sun badge on the battlefield. You are more than welcome to keep that and uh, and and treasure that as a as a relic. Quite extraordinary. So I'm going to continue looking out for it in the future. But um, so far, so far, no luck. Uh, but that really brings us to the end of uh, of the uh, of the walk, Pete. We've now done the full approach route from uh, from Albert all the way to Pozier. And 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 when you do this walk, please do it at some stage when battlefields are open and you can walk. Do this to add an extra dimension to your your understanding of what the soldiers went through, because it's really quite extraordinary. And always bear in mind that you're walking with ghosts on this on this walk. That that literally thousands of the men who who made this 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 track this trek up this track into Pozier were killed or wounded and 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 never came back the same way. So it's it's a really extraordinary walk, Pete. I've, it was this was one of the first things we talked about doing when we talked about doing the podcast. So I'm really excited that we've done it. It's it's very close to my heart, and just a really special place on the battlefields. It is uh, and to me. I, I'm uh, I'm not Australian, but it's it's one of my favourites. You really f- walks. You feel that you're that they're walking alongside of you when when you're in this, and because it is so quiet and peaceful. Because a lot of these tracks and lanes we've been discussing, there's nobody nobody here. There's very few people here, even when the battlefields are fully open it's still very quiet and these are these non-touristy uh, locations so it's a, it's a great place to, uh, to to have a walk well pete as always it's been wonderful thank you very much for your uh, your insights uh, on this most important walk across the battlefields my pleasure 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.